Welcome to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman. And as always, we are your guys for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we will be talking about the upcoming People's Summit uh, happening in Los Angeles also going to be uh, discussing recent developments in the reparations movement, specifically in California. And it's Friday, which means we're going to be having our weekly segment, The Red Spin Report. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Speaking in the dimly lit cross hall in the White House and flanked on either side by rows of candles that represented the number of people killed in the recent mass shootings, Joseph Biden conjured up his best human emotions to deliver an impassioned promise that he would do something about gun violence in this country. How much more carnage are we willing to accept? Biden asked, demanding Republicans in particular in their blockade of gun control votes. Since the mass shootings in Uvalde, Texas and Buffalo, New York, Biden has been pressed to do something which he promised he would do. But his speech was only tough talk to encourage Congress to reinstate a ban on assault weapons, to expand background check requirements for gun purchases, to create new rules for safely storing weapons, to enact new red flag laws that would prevent gun sales to those with criminal records, repeal liability shields for gun manufacturers, and provide more mental health services for students. All tough talk, but none of this is going to happen in Congress. Let's be real. You and I know this. Whatever's going to be done legislatively regarding gun control is going to have to come from the states. And New York is already actually doing something by passing 10 gun safety laws, including a ban on the sale and purchase of Barty body armor with exceptions for law enforcement, peace officers, military, and others whose job requires a bulletproof vest. They also voted to raise the age to purchase a semi-automatic rifle from 18 to 21, and they made large capacity magazine sales illegal, as well as they passed red flag laws and strengthened background checks. But we need to be clear that background checks already exist for those purchasing a gun from a licensed Gun seller, private and online sellers have not had the same requirements and have been the focus of calls for expanded background check legislation. Sandy Hook Promise notes that as of 2020, 21 states and the District of Columbia have passed legislation to extend the federal background check requirement to cover at least some forms of private sales. And as far as assault weapons are concerned, the Kaiser Family Foundation reports that eight states already ban assault weapon sales, and that includes banning assault weapons by name or by specific features of the gun that make a gun an assault weapon. But it's worth noting that all of the laws exempt possession of prohibited assault weapons prior to the ban going in effect. So nobody went in and got anybody's assault weapons when these bans on them were passed in those eight states. 
And while people being able to buy body armor may seem weird, now that I think about it, I remember a time when there were army surplus stores pretty much everywhere in this country, and you could just walk in and buy all manner of military equipment from camouflage gear like pants, jackets, and hats to camping gear like canteens and tents and such to, yes, body armor and more. In fact, these stores still exist. And you can still buy surplus military equipment, including all manner of, quote, tactical gear from boots to body armor, with many doing most of their business, you guessed it, online. And doesn't that make sense, though, that you can easily purchase surplus military equipment and tactical gear for a reasonable fee, plus shipping and handling in a country that has gotten rich and powerful off of war? Here's Joseph Biden and the Congress of Millionaires that he leads repeatedly approving hundreds of millions of dollars of weapons to be sent to Ukraine in a war that the U.S. and their white supremacist international army, NATO, started with the sole purpose of provoking Russia. The Biden administration and everyone in Congress has approved military support to Ukraine repeatedly since February of this year, seven times to be exact, on February 25th, March 12th, March 16th, April 5th, April 13th, April 21st, and April 24th. The earlier military support packages averaged about $30 million a day. And to be clear, they did not include economic and humanitarian support and the cost of U.S. forces deployed to Europe for the crisis. This current package increases the aid level to $135 million a day. The defense contractors make millions from the U.S. government ordering more weapons from them to send to Ukraine. And it doesn't matter to anyone in the defense industrial complex nor in Congress that many of the people who are receiving these weapons and other military aid are right-wing neo-Nazi fanatics who just carried out an eight-year civil war against ethnic Russians in Donbass and Lugansk. In fact, they know who they're giving weapons to, and they continue to do it while telling you and me that it's Putin who needs to be stopped. So who does Joe Biden think he is fooling, standing behind a podium, feigning outrage and invoking God and wondering when the carnage on our streets will end, when he's pouring carnage onto the streets of Ukraine to the tune of $135 million a day? When the U.S. stops enabling the carnage all over the world as a business model, maybe then we'll stop seeing the blowback on our streets. Follow Lukemont Nation on Patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And we're going to keep the movement moving on, as they say. And we're now happy to be joined by Kenya Alcocer, an organizer with Union de Vecinos and the Los Angeles Tenants Union. Kenya, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And Kenya, from June 8th 
through the 10th in Los Angeles, California, there will be the People's Summit for Democracy, which will be a summit of different social movements and people's movements, both inside and outside the United States. Lots of different panels and things like this. It's a a very exciting thing that appears to be coming together with some really amazing sorts of panels and events and concerts and things like that surrounding it. And so uh, we've been talking some about the summit here on the show, but we were hoping that you could sort of uh, break down, uh, you know, what's happening with the People's Summit, uh, what was sort of the vision for the event and, you know, why you all chose to to organize this. Well, I mean, when Biden announced that there was, he was bringing um, the Summit of the Americas here to Los Angeles and to showcase Los Angeles as this post-COVID um, economically recovered um, city, we felt we had the obligation to organize a counter summit that spoke truth to what's happening in Los Angeles, um, that talked about the many deaths we had during COVID, um, the many resources and protections that we're losing now that people are trying to move us um, to think that there is no longer a pandemic, even though numbers here in the county of Los Angeles are going up again, Um, and the homelessness that has been created because of the pandemic, um, because of greedy landlords. Um, So we thought it was our responsibility as um, people's movements here in Los Angeles to really talk about um, all of these issues, but also nationally when, when you have a president saying, you know, we're going to be here talking about democracy and how democracy needs to be implemented. And that is why we're excluding Venezuela, um, Cuba, and Nicaragua, because they, they, they feel it's not a democratic um, process. We felt that that was a hypocrisy that we also needed to expose, um, given the fact that here in the United States, you can have one person um, hold back an entire um, bill that it's going to protect a lot of people during COVID that took away the child tax credit. And and this person was just single-handedly deciding this for an entire nation, and the country couldn't do anything about it. So we felt that that is not democracy um, when people are suffering, and therefore we needed to do something that called that out, but also we needed to do something to build. And I think that this is an important step for us here in Los Angeles is to build um, movement with other folks because the pandemic taught us that we can no longer be working in silos. We need to work together because our folks are being impacted by every single issue at the same time, whether it's housing insecurity, food insecurity, not no access to health care, um, like fighting for living wages. I think that that's something that a lot of movements, not just here in the United States, but across the board are working towards. And this is a moment where we can build a strong platform for working class folks. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the the Summit of the Americas is particularly uh, important in uh, uh, calling out or or 
being an example of the hypocrisy of the United States in the way that this government has uh, alienated uh, Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba for being alleged undemocratic countries when those countries have been certainly in right in the middle of the crosshairs of U.S. imperialism and their public sectors have been undermined for decades by U.S. and IMF-imposed neoliberal policies that really made their societies and their economies very difficult to provide for their people the kinds of support that they need. The kinds of support, mind you, that we don't get in this country, uh, you know, health care for all, housing for all, education for all. So, you know, in the uh, People's Summit, how are uh, the participants from these countries and other uh, uh, countries uh, in the Americas, all of the Americas, addressing these issues that are facing uh, Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua, but also uh, other countries in the region that are uh, suffering still under COVID and continuing to struggle under U.S. and IMF uh, neoliberal imperialist policies? So we're going to be having... A lot of space for conversation. We're having panels, plenaries, workshops where people can come together and start having those conversations, even having debates of how some of these things need to be resolved. But at the end of the day, I think that one of the things that it's important is that we are creating a space where um people can actually reimagine um, a new world, reimagine what could, what is possible. And I think that that's something that's very important um, for us, especially here in Los Angeles, where we have a lot of immigrants um, that are coming, that are from some of these countries that are coming in that were displaced um, because of imperialism and because of um free trade agreements. So this is the, the space I, I, we feel that where the conversations and folks can actually talk about the work that they've been doing on the ground to change and to shift their their um, countries and their movements to a different direction. And I think that that's something that is very critical and important, um, this exchange of ideas, this exchange of um of strategies and and tactics, um, and for us, that's what this um, makes rich is that it's people from movements that are going to be coming. I mean, we don't have the presidents and we don't have the big CEOs, but we have people from the the the, the base that is actually doing the work on the ground. So for us, that I think it's very critical and very important, especially given the fact that here in the United States. There's a lot of work that it's being done to take away a lot of people's rights. So you you have the attack on people's right to vote. The, the day before we start the summit here in Los Angeles, we're actually having an election um, when people when women's rights are being taken away, and then 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 you have all these insurgency coming from Latin America that have been fighting against a lot of that. So you have Venezuelan women that are coming to talk about how they're fighting against patriarchy, and then you have folks from Comunas who are talking about how they're 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 building their own housing. And our um, so like there's self determination when it comes to like having access to some of these um, things that we don't have necessarily here. At least the 140 million poor and dispossessed in the United States don't have. Definitely, and you know I think it's so important that 
you know, we we have these conversations and these debates amongst uh, uh, the different people's movements, you know, out of this attempt to really build like a, a mass struggle around all of these uh, uh, very serious issues. And that sort of thing to me, uh, Kenya, is a, a core part of what democracy really is. And I feel like there's a, a direct connection uh, uh, between that and uh, the whole issue surrounding uh, uh, the upcoming uh, Summit for Americas, of course, being hosted by the U.S. government. I mean, uh, recently, uh, Brian Nichols, who's the U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for uh, the Western Hemisphere of Affairs, he said that Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba were being excluded because they engaged in, quote, actions that do not respect democracy. And, you know, I think this is another point of uh, uh, hypocrisy because, you know, for the people summoned for democracy, there was supposed to be a, a, a civic delegation from Cuba that was supposed to come and uh, uh, be a part of it. But they had their visas denied uh, by the U.S. And also LAPD recently uh, uh, basically has refused to grant a permit for uh, a march uh, against the summit of the Americas that the People Summit was uh, attempting to organize. And so so on the one hand, uh, the U.S. government proclaims to care about democracy, but not only violates it all over the world, it will even uh, uh, violate uh, those rights of the people right here in this country who are simply trying to exchange and be in conversation and community with uh, the different struggling peoples of the world. And so for me, um, I think it's beautiful that the summit continues to uh, 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 sort of roll on. It's obviously still quite strong. It's come together very well. And I think that's why it's so important that we have these kinds of um, uh, uh, events where we had the people's moments that come together because that's where the the real strength is when you talk about the poor working and oppressed people of this earth and, and as such uh, we can't let the machinations of the state try to stop us from what we're trying to accomplish you know yes I mean for us I think that the summit is not a uh, it's not just an event. It's the beginning of building something stronger and something bigger that right. can help us fight back. So I think that that's something that we're looking at this, not just as something that we'll have for three days and then we'll move on. We're building coalition. We're building um, a, a, a group of folks that are coming together to really have this conversation and see how we can continue to fight back together. And it's no longer just a local fight. We need to look at this as an international fight. So I think that that's also part of this process. It's like really like thinking of like how the local becomes um, national and how that becomes international and how we continue to fight um, with all of our strength against all of the illnesses that are impacting us, whether it's poverty, systemic racism, ecological devastation, the war economy, and even the distorted moral narrative of white Christian nationalism. I think that that's something that we need to talk about because we, we're seeing what's happening, especially with the shootings like in Buffalo, that, that that is something that's very ingrained in a lot of folks here in this country, and it's something that we need to fight back against. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, this uh, uh, the, the permit that was uh, denied is really important, particularly on today, since today is uh, the uh, anniversary of the beginning of the Zoot Suit riots in L.A. And the LAPD, uh, we know, has a very long history of uh, a repression against people's movements. I mean, what will be the response of uh, the People's Summit if the permit 
permit is not granted? Uh, what should we look forward to uh, in the coming days from the summit? And how can we support? Well, I think that for us, it's um, as simple as whose streets. It's our streets. So we're going to be taking them over. A permit, no permit. I think that people are ready to really, like, come out and voice their opinions. It's been two years of um, global pandemic where people's opinions were suppressed, where a lot of our rights are now being stripped away from us, whether it's tenant protections or food security. So for now, I think that a lot of folks are saying enough is enough, and we're going to be taking the streets. Um, and LAPD is going to have to either work with us or or see us um, just do it. So I think that that's where we're at right now. It's like we're not going to stop um, organizing. We're not going to stop marching. We're not going to stop talking. Um, and that is the, the reason why we're doing this, because we have um, our own demands that we're going to be developing. And Biden and the rest of the presidents and CEOs and rich people from all of these other countries are going to have to listen to us. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, if people want to find out more uh, about the People's Summit for Democracy, you can check out the website at peoplesummit2022.org. That's peoplesummit2022.org. You can also check them out on all of your various uh, social media platforms. Yeah, and again, I mean, it seems like such uh, an exciting uh, and important gathering because you're right, uh, Kenya, that it's not just an event. This is a group of movements that are coming together to really sort a, a build and not just engage in the kind of empty rhetoric and political theater that we see from uh, the mainstream uh, a political uh, uh, wing of uh, uh, this society, if you will. And so I definitely encourage people to check out the website. We want to thank you so much, Kenya, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman. And as always, we are your guys for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the latest developments in the struggle for slavery reparations in the United States. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Dr. Dave Ragland, the co-executive director of the Truth Telling Project and director of the Grassroots Reparations Campaign. Dr. Ragland, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And Dr. Raglan, uh, a task force in uh, California has released a report detailing the uh, racist and slavery past of the California state, uh, uh, making a case for reparations uh, in that state. Now, namely, this was the California task force to study and develop reparations proposals for African-Americans that uh, Governor Gavin Newsom uh, signed into existence uh, uh, back in 2020. And uh, the report says in part, quote, 
400 years of discrimination has resulted in an enormous and persistent wealth gap between black and white Americans. These effects of slavery continue to be embedded in American society today and have never been sufficiently remedied. The governments of the United States and the state of California have never apologized to or compensated African-Americans for these harms. And so as someone who spends a lot of time organizing around the issue of uh, uh, reparations in the U.S., Dr. Raglan, I'm wondering uh, uh, not only how you're feeling about this report, but, you know, whether you think it has any impacts on the broader conversation around reparations in this country. I think the California report is so germane to the entire conversation about reparations in the U.S., because what happens in California, like in textbooks, happens in many other states around the country. You know, similar to, like, for instance, if the California School Board, which has many of the largest school districts in the country, if they adopt certain textbooks, then the rest of the country will follow. And similarly, with this particular bill, uh, many other parts of the country will follow. Um, And to whatever good is in it will be good for other um, places and locales and parts of the country, especially since the federal government um, is so behind in, in moving forward on um, even introducing a bill really to be voted on, uh, despite, um, you know, Democrats in, in charge of the House telling uh, those who are bringing uh, H.R. 40 forward that if you get so many co-sponsors, we'll, you know, bring it up for a vote. And they did that, surpassing the um, the number of people um, to co-sponsor and still hasn't brought been brought up to the vote because there's a lack of real leadership federally for reparations. So this is really significant. So whatever good and bad is in this bill is going to re- be recreated uh, locally and have an influence on the federal legislation as well. Yeah, and it, it, it is particularly um, important that uh, we highlight these issues because, as, you know, Governor Ga- uh, Gavin Newsom uh, correctly pointed out, he said these effects of slavery continue to be embedded in American society today and have never been sufficiently remi- remedied. The governments of the United States and the state of California have never apologized to or compensated African Americans for the harms. So, you know, when looking at just California, the fact that African-Americans make up uh, about 6% of California's population, but are overrepresented in jails, youth detention centers, and prisons. About 28% of people in California prisons are black. Uh, that was from 2019. And African American youth make up 36% of minors ordered into state juvenile detention facilities. How can whatever comes from this reparations report and the task force immediately uh, address the issue of mass incarceration of black men and women and youth in California that could also be replicated uh, across the country. And I mean, so I'm going to be honest. I'm not quite sure. Uh, I I am only in the beginning of the report. It's over 500 pages, but I'm working my way through it. And but I do know that one of the things I'm concerned about is the way that reparations has been, um, to a large extent, um, 
described and promoted um, in in this particular approach um, as an approach that's limited, Um, you know, in the sense that one of the groups that has had a lot of influence over um, this process because they have a lot of organizers on the ground talking about reparations is ADOS. And so, you know, often we, we will think about reparations in terms of the wealth gap. And for me, when I came to the conversation about uh, reparations, it was people who had looked at reparations as, okay, can I get a seat at the table? Uh, but for me, reparations is about kicking over the table, you know, especially if reparations does involve compensation. It also involves healing, education, and um, memorializing, uh, but also guarantees of non-repeat. How do we not repeat the same um, institutions that got us here? So at this point, I'm unclear about um, its impact on um, uh, the mass people who are incarcerated um, because I don't see this approach to non-repeat and also the bill, the proposal itself, the recent eligibility requirements that were uh, put up uh, by this commission um, essentially uh, are repeating some of the same harms that we are experiencing as a community. For instance, you have to be able to prove your eligibility. And this commission sets up an office that helps African-Americans and black folks walk through if they had um, um, descendants who were enslaved um, in this country. Uh, But on one part of that is that um, to say that uh, reparations uh, for slavery should be uh, limited to to those who descended from slavery. Also, forget that slavery did not end with the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, slavery continued in so many different ways. And so if we are to think about what reparations really mean, it means reparations for slavery and the world that slavery created, which we are still living in, which people are incarcerated in. And so the eligibility requirement was um, short-sighted on the part of the commissioners because they were only thinking about what white folks thought would be acceptable to pay reparations for and limit it in a way that um, denies that discrimination continues to not only people who uh, descended from people who were enslaved in California and the United States, but people who migrated and immigrated to the U.S. because of the U.S. imperialism around the world. And um, also, police weren't stopping to ask Black folks if you're a migrant or not, or if you're adults or not, but are you Black? And what this might open up is Anybody who lives like a white person but has um, or presents as a white person or accepts white privilege or doesn't even want reparations um, who um, can trace some ancestor of theirs back to the same in the United States will get reparations. So this is, in in essence, benefiting those with privilege and access um, to uh, and wants to put their DNA or figure out, um, you know, their ancestry and thus putting us in the same box. This 
bill um, in California, as it stands, that the eligibility requirement is a closing, not an opening. Dr. Raglan, I love the way that you frame that, and I love the way that uh, uh, you really sort of analyze that whole situation. I mean, just to begin, when we were talking about mass incarceration, to give some stats as it pertains to California, I mean, black folks make up almost 6% of California's population, but, uh, you know, overwhelmingly, and this is also a part of a national trend, overwhelmingly overrepresented in youth detention centers, prisons, jails, and things like that, with about 28% of all imprisoned people in California being black. And in 2019, black youth made up 30 percent of minors that were ordered into uh, state juvenile detention facilities. Now, uh, nearly 9 percent of people that live below the poverty level in California were black and 30 percent of people experiencing homelessness in 2019 were black. And these are according to state statistics. So when you talk about how the dynamics of slavery were recreated and reified, I mean, mass incarceration, of course, was uh, uh, the main uh, a trigger of that or one of the main vectors of that, if you will, by basically reinstating slavery uh, in every way but name through the prison system and the 13th Amendment, which makes slavery illegal under those uh, conditions. And what you raise about ADOS, uh, this group called um, American Descendants of Slavery, is, is so important as well. And for those who may not be aware, this is an effort that sort of started online but as of late uh, has really began to bled into sort of on the ground, real life organizing efforts like we've seen in California. And we maintain on by uh, on any means necessary that ADOS is a reactionary movement. It is a uh, impediment to the black liberation struggle. I would argue that these are enemies of the black liberation struggle because they're not actually fueled by, you know, any uh, a real attempt at um, uh, a kind of critical uh, uh, movement struggle. But really, it, it's a xenophobic, uh, anti-immigrant uh, sort of effort that literally its leadership literally emerges from the racist, conservative, anti-immigrant movement. And so I agree with you wholeheartedly when you describe that as a, a closing and not an opening. And uh, as such, we're not down with ADOS. We're down with SODA, S-O-D-A, the Solidarity of Dispersed Africans. And that's relevant when we talk about the real what should be the real character of reparations in the United States, Dr. Raglan, because as you say, it shouldn't just be uh, what they call today inclusion or, or a seat at the table, because oftentimes a seat at the table in almost any sense usually means compromising some critical things in order to be found um, acceptable in the status quo. But acceptance into the status quo, you know, this like weird assimilationist sort of way of thinking about it, which what I think it really is, that doesn't really factor into the repair that has to be done for what the institution of slavery has done to black folks, understanding that slavery not only was an important factor in building what became the United States, but also in the development of capitalism as a worldwide economic force. And so as such, when we look at the fact that, you know, uh, 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 slavery in this country and our, our oppression, the very nature of it actually is international, and we don't lose anything by acknowledging that and acting accordingly. And so this is why, Dr. Raglan, the sort of work you do in, in, in helping to develop a real grassroots uh, 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 
uh, reparations movement is so important to counter uh, what are frankly uh, a right wing movements masquerading as if they're really fighting for reparations just uh, dipped in black. Yeah, I mean, I agree. And I just want to name like, while I don't agree with ADOS and I think that they are, you know, an impediment to real liberation. The thing about reparations is it is a moral and material debt. Mm -hmm. And it is owed to black people. So any black person who gets out there and tells you how they want it, they got a right to tell you how they want it. You know, and so I I disagree with ADOS. I I think, you know, their rhetoric is, is deeply problematic. I also think they have a right to do it um, because that's, that's what white supremacy has brought us. Um, I also think it uses the internal logic of racism. Um, um, ADOS does and saying like who should be included and who should not. And the xenophobic uh, framing that they often use also is deeply problematic. And to some extent, Many of them are trying to lighten up and go mainstream, and even many ADOS members are defecting and moving to organizations like Encobra. And I do think that there does need to be grassroots organizing around reparations. And, you know, I almost don't even want to talk about it on, on the call because, you know, what, I'm, what, what we're talking about to a large extent is often only... Um, not a lot of people know what we're talking about or tune in like the average black person walking down the street, you know, and this is the same way reason that like law and order um, electoral politics, like gain a lot of traction is because it's a simple message and, you know, regular black folks walking around every day, haven't necessarily been organized around like the deepness of reparations and, the decolonial um, liberatory possibilities of, they don't even know what I'm talking about when I I say they understand, right? People understand, right, this colonial system. They understand it often, right? But the system is really rooted in um, that the only way to be free is like through some capitalistic means. Like you got the Jay-Z's and billionaires of the world who are encouraging, like this is the only way to get free. And so unfortunately, like this is what we're countering. And it feels like a real, you know, um, a real simple message that they're using. And so, you know, what I'm challenged about um, and really hopeful about is how can we develop a message and messaging to reach our people and people around the country to understand uh, that that reparations is more than a check and it's not about getting a seat at the table. It's about overturning a table that would even enslave people as a way to build wealth or 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 use or drop bombs on countries where the people there have to come here. Um, And I think that reparations in the United States for black people has to be deep. um, And it has to go beyond what the civil rights movement did in terms of, you know, uh, projects like affirmative action, really um, supporting white women benefiting more than African-Americans or, or, or in the same way, it can't be 
you know, the same racist um, institutions that were used to enslave people like banks, right? Why should they be cutting the checks for reparations? And I think that that's what these approaches, particularly this one, is going to fall victim to. It's going to fall victim to, you know, um, what could be very liberatory to being a, a check. And then, you know, as soon as a check cut, people continue the same practice that, that they require reparations. And so the work that we're doing in the grassroots reparations campaign is really about educating um, communities um, so that they can, number one, support H.R. 40 and understand that reparations is uh, not just about a check, but about healing, education, um, it is about the truth-telling about what happened. It is about the truth-seeking and uncovering the harm that was done to black folks, not just for the period of enslavement, but the period of enslavement up to now and dismantling the institutions that, per that perpetuate the violence against black folks. And that same violence against black folks is used against people all around the world. So in Ferguson... When they were using tear gas against us, Palestinians were experiencing those. They, they were the same tear gas canisters were being used against them. So in this sense, reparations for black people as slavery being one of the founding violences of this nation, uh, reparations for black people can be accountability for America to for once acknowledge and pay for the harm that it has caused and stop that harm. Uh, reparations can be an opening, not just for us here in the U.S., but for every group that's being harmed by U.S. imperialism and European imperialism. You make an excellent point on a couple of levels, Dr. Raglan. I mean, first of all, you're right that reparations for black folks would inevitably have a ripple effects um, for a poor working and oppressed people throughout the globe. And also this importance of messaging. I mean, I feel like you're so right about this because as deeply critical as we are about uh, uh, the ADOS movement, I think it's also true that their messaging uh, seems to you know, have caught on uh, with some level of popularity. And so what that means to me is, is that uh, the best way to counter that is with, you know, uh, frankly, a kind of revolutionary, a kind of movement that sort of, you know, understands these uh, deeper dynamics that you're discussing as a way to beat back this uh, right wing attempt at hijacking the reparations movement. But we're going to leave it there for now here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. want to thank Dr. Dave Raglan so much for joining us today. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Friday, which means it's time for another edition of our weekly segment, The Red Spin Report, where we discuss sports, politics, and struggle with Nate Wallace, the co-host of The Red Spin Sports Podcast. Nate, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Sean Jackie, glad to be back. 
Absolutely. And Nate, uh, some sad news today as a hard hitting uh, Dallas Cowboys running back Marion Barber III uh, has died at uh, the age of 38. So still uh, quite a young person, uh, not that much older than you or I, Nate. And uh, uh, could you sort of break down uh, what happened regarding Barber? What do we know so far about uh, what happened with him and what do you see sort of unfolding from this? All right, so we'll just start from like how he was found, then I'll just kind of go back and get a little biography. I mean, he uh, was found in his, with the water running in a shower um, from a welfare check. Um, I guess he hadn't, the people hadn't were concerned he hadn't emerged from his apartment in Frisco, Texas, which is a suburb of uh, Dallas. Um, Mary, Mary Barber is, you know, had a few like arrests. They were just kind of like based on strange behavior, kind of. And he's, even some of his mug shots, one of them for 2014, you could just kind of tell. You know, he really uh, aged a lot, um, however you want to put it. it. Just didn't look well, like him. You know, the way he he uh, he always had really thick dreads and was healthy, and, and you know, and uh, you know, had a really like uh, illuminating smile and someone that really connected with people. Um, he was played at the University of Minnesota in his hometown of Minneapolis with uh, you know future Patriot running back Lawrence Maroney, and they were kind of like a dynamic duo and. Uh, you know, but he was known as Marion the Barbarian, Barber the Third, for a reason. There's a famous clip of him, like you know, uh, you know, having the whole team New England Patriots attempting to tackle him in the end zone, and he was able to prevent them from uh, having that happen, which would have got been a safety and awarded them two points. So, I mean, his whole style has been about you know, uh, you know, being a bruising back, being one who can inflict inflict pain. And uh, on his uh, on the opponent, and uh, and isn't isn't about just uh, some Barry Sanders, you know, I'm gonna make you miss me, but I'm gonna run over you type thing. So tragically, it's not as surprising as I, it should be, um, and uh, that's sort of where we are right now with with uh, with, with Marion Barber and uh, his tragic passing. His brother was set to get married on June 10th. This would have been his 39th birthday too. So just kind of adds to the tragic nature of it. Yeah. And, you know, the, of course, whenever these kinds of things happen with particularly former football players, the question of the damage that the sport uh, may have inflicted upon their bodies, particularly uh, CTE, always comes up in my mind, Nate, because especially in Barber's case, because since he retired, he had been arrested a couple of times, including being detained and taken to a hospital for a mental health evaluation in 2014. Now, of course, we we don't know, uh, you know, the cause of death and, and, uh, you know, if CTE had anything to do with it. But I do feel like this once again raises the issue of the lack of real player support and a concern for current and former players uh, in the NFL and should really call into question what kind of health care, what kind of benefits these players have while they're playing and when they're retired. Right. Absolutely, Jack. I'm glad you brought that up because the thing is, there's all this talk of like player safety here in the NFL and uh, with, with, with football. And the reality is, you know, there's things you could do on the margins, but it, it's not a safe sport. It's like saying, you know, boxer safety, you know, boxing's inherently a, a violent sport and it's about delivering blows on your opponent, right? So it's this idea that just, let's just talk about player safety um, really kind of rings hollow after a while. And the reality is with uh, someone like, like, like Marion Barber is, and many other former players is that you're right. The health care does not last, you know, throughout, you know, lifetime. I mean, that's even for, 
players that are vested. They do have very, uh, you know, very good, t- a very, you know, good pension system. But uh, the health care issue is something the owners have uh, put their, put, you know, put, kind of stake their flag in the ground in CBA negotiations and uh, refuse to uh, go there. And it also speaks to the reason reasons for that. To me, speaks that just they know how insanely expensive health care is in this country, despite the obscene amount of money that it's being raked in. Um, in, in uh, even the revenue sharing pool going up, but the, the idea that like oh healthcare though that's like you know we just, we can't go there um, in terms of lifetime benefits. So um, it, it's it's really it, it does highlight another thing. It is important to point out that he did not want his brain donated um, uh, post mortem for CT research, so he will be being buried in in, 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 in Minneapolis in the next few days and. Uh, it's tragic, and uh, you know, I mean, obviously, it'd be nice to, to know, but I, I think it's there, there's no doubt that I mean, let's just put two and two together <laughs> that that clearly, uh, you know, his brain was not in optimal condition. No way that all the not just the blood blows he absorbed, but mainly blows he delivered. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, speaking of the NFL, Nate, I mean, there's also this issue of uh, Deshaun Watson, who now uh, is facing 23 civil lawsuits concerning um, accusations of uh, different forms of uh, sexual misconduct and sex abuse, uh, uh, particularly uh, uh, coming from different massage therapists. And this is following a recent episode of uh, HBO's Real Sports Story, where uh, Soledad O'Brien spoke to uh, a couple of other uh, massage therapists with similar accusations. And there was even one uh, massage therapist who originally wasn't going to sue Watson or take legal action against him until she saw the the other women uh, uh, come forward. And as, you know, often happens in these kinds of cases, seeing other victims uh, speak out about what happens emboldens other victims to come forward. And, you know, I'm just wondering what you make of this. Of course, you know, uh, Deshaun Watson, a quarterback for the the Cleveland Browns, and uh, how you see this whole issue with Watson playing. Out. I forget. I mean, he just signed a mega deal. I mean, he was traded from the Houston Texans to the Cleveland Browns. Browns who said they felt completely comfortable with the situation. Uh, they was met with a lot of skepticism. Uh, you know, I mean, honestly, you know, they know that there's going to be a lot of criticism, but it just kind of shows what you know is the situation and, and that you know, where the priorities are. It's, it's win to win to win, and that's just the nature of the beast. So. Uh, you know, it's not as if this is like a, a huge surprise is coming out. Like you said, when other victims speak out, and especially with the vehement denials, let's not forget his attorney, Rusty Harden, was also Roger Clemens' attorney. And Roger Clemens, you know, was sort of, you know, went from hero status in American folklore to uh, to villain pretty quickly with his uh, denials of HDH and, and, and performance enhancing drugs and lying before Congress about it and all that. And, uh, you know, he's not been, that's the reason he's not in the Hall of Fame. Uh, so this guy Harden is uh, someone who's, um, you know, does good, good at his job. I mean, he stays on message. It's, it's, uh, they're, they're consistently arguing that he's lost his, he's not saying he did some things wrong. He, he apologizes, even though there's depositions that, you know, um, that, that make clear that uh, he did have sex with three of the massage therapists. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess he would argue it was consensual. Um, so, uh, yeah, another, another case that comes out, um, and then of course, another interview that's done HBO real sports always, you know, it's been a highly celebrated show. does a good job with, uh, you know, issues outside the lines in sports. And, uh, it really, uh, you know, kind of like, yeah, it brings into focus just like, again, the number 23, you know, it's not like 
you know, you got a beef with, you know, one person or even two people, right? And they maybe want to get back at you or something. And, you know, there's at least some ambiguity, but it's uh, pretty remarkable to think you could just uh, line up 23 people just uh, trying to get paid. And that's, you know, the claims that come out of the Watson camp. I mean, this latest accuser is seeking the minimum compensation, too. She just wants to be adjudicated as uh, in on the record that, that he, you know, uh, you know, was, was it's just all civil court too. Let's be, let's be clear about that. This is not the grand jury decided not to push forward with criminal charges. So um, she just wants the the record to be you know reflected honestly. Of she of she feels that you know it, it happened and uh, you know so it's it's just hardly you know anywhere near the finish line now. It's going to go on for a while and uh, it's going to be bitterly fought at every level, every every part you know every every stop and every every little detail is going to be challenged. So it's going to get a a long way to go with this. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that HBO uh, sports show covers, uh, uh, you know, outside the lines in sports because there's always so much going on uh, outside, exactly as you said, outside the lines in sports, off the field, you know, off, off the diamond, off the court. And particularly as we are uh, observing Pride Month, that's absolutely true, uh, continuing on the struggle for transgender uh, athletes to be recognized as the athletes they are, and particularly since uh, swimmer, University of Pennsylvania swimmer Leah Thomas uh, finally responded to critics uh, saying that trans women competing in women's sports does not threaten women's sports. But she's, of course, getting pushback from uh, a teammate uh, of hers who has gone on uh, one of the talk shows and says that she feels like uh, the sport now feels tainted. I mean, this is, I I can't say turning into a a horrible situation, but this is one of those examples of how sports isn't just what goes on, you know, in the pool, uh, in the locker room, on the field. There is a lot outside the lines of sports that are really important. So what what have been the developments for Leah Thomas and uh, this particular issue? Yeah, well, I mean, Leah Thomas did an interview with, uh, you know, ABC's Good Morning America, which ABC and ESPN are the same parent company under Disney. So it aired on ESPN platforms, too, and kind of finally broke her silence about this whole um, just, just experience that became like a, uh, this, this really like a, 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 just a, a stand in for a much larger, you know, culture war debate in this country about, you know, what is womanhood, right? About what is, what, gen, you know, gender, you know, and, and you know, and, and the, whether, you know, what, how sport ties into that, the idea of fairness versus like, uh, you know, so fairness to people, um, to trans people, but then like all these claims about, you know, fairness to, you know, um, you know, so biological women and whatnot. And, and, and it, it's really just illuminated kind of where people stand and, and, uh, and what, where people, what people value most. I mean, I guess, and Leah Thomas is just made what she said was that like, uh, it was, um, it was, it was never an ability. It was never ability to, like, to gain an advantage or anything, but it was ability to just be able to, to do what you love while, um, you know, being, you know, the authentic, her authentic self. And uh, that was uh, what, what she reiterated over and over, especially in response to, you know, being challenged about like some of those arguments, especially at the South Dakota governor threatening the lawsuits against the Department of Agriculture now over uh, issues and regarding, you know, their ban on trans athletes in, in South Dakota schools. Um, and you had this, 
you know, podcaster and author Matt Walsh, who, uh, you know, did this, uh, is doing a documentary about gender politics called What is a Woman, uh, who had this anonymous teammate of Leah Thomas come on and, and talk about how, you know, there was just this, like, complete culture of uh, fear that, like, anyone who spoke up uh, was being transphobic immediately, even if you were, uh, you know, just had, like, you know, legitimate concerns and whatnot. And, uh, and, and it's all about this idea of being, of being tainted. And, and, uh, and it, I don't know. It's just uh, that it's, it, it, where do you go with that? I mean, they, they talk about creating a separate trans, you know, competition league, which is just absurd. I mean, it's just like a way of saying that you can't, you know, you're not, you're not going to play and whatever it is. Um, so it's, uh, it's one of those issues that has a lot of cultural, you know, salience with, with certain demographics, especially on the right. And, uh, and, and they're kind of using the the the, 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 the flag and, and the, uh, sort of the, the, the feminist sort of language and whatnot to uh, to sort of back up their their arguments there. So that's where we are. You see the right wing kind of like you know making the claims about being being the true defenders of like you know women's sports and and and, and, and women against this uh, you know all these changes. And, and that's uh, only heating up, but it was good that Leah Thomas was able to get her own voice out there and, and, and push back against, like, uh, you know, a lot of this and, 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 you know, kind of state clearly how she feels. Uh, Definitely. And, I mean, of course it's known about how Leah Thomas won the, the 500 uh, freestyle uh, contest, but she also placed fifth and eighth, uh, respectively, in the 200 and 100 freestyle. But no one seems to be upset about that. And, and it's it just goes back to something that people say all the time about this issue, which is true, is that people only seem upset um, when when trans athletes win competitions. But when they lose, apparently it's 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 not really an issue. And even in uh, a recent interview, uh, uh, she clarified some of this, saying, quote, the biggest misconception, I think, is the reason I transition. People will say, oh, she just transitioned so she would have an advantage, so she could win. I transitioned to be happy to be true to myself. And I mean, you know, you would think that that would be obvious that, you know, for someone to subject themselves to what um, Leah uh, has uh, uh, been put through simply for the sake of winning an athletic competition, to me seems uh, pretty wild. But even when we talk about this, uh, uh, you know, so-called culture war, I think in reality, it's, you know, a reactionary uh, transphobic smear campaign that has to be resisted from the movement level, because, you know, we we see that the Democrats are not exactly uh, uh, the best fighters in this or on many other issues. But we thank you so much, Nate, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guides for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Friday, June 3rd, 2022. And, of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call if by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades that y'all 
to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C. You can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in By Any Means Necessary. You can also listen to us on Sputnik.Mave, that's M-A-V-E, dot digital, and you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time each weekday, and we are streaming live for your viewing pleasure right now on Rumble. That's rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do when we're very happy to be joined for the hour today by Mr. James Early, former director of cultural heritage policy at the Center for Folklife and Cultural Heritage at the Smithsonian Institution and board member of the Institute for Policy Studies. Mr. Early, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me back. Absolutely. And uh, Mr. Early, we've been discussing on the show uh, about how uh, the Joe Biden administration seems to be uh, shifting somewhat uh, in terms of its orientation or, or certainly the narrative around the uh, war in Ukraine. Uh, of course, recently we've seen uh, uh, plans revealed to deliver uh, advanced uh, weapons to Ukraine, uh, including a Javelin anti-tank missiles, Stinger anti-aircraft missiles, powerful artillery and precision rocket systems, radars, unmanned aerial vehicles, MI-17 helicopters, and ammunition. And uh, that what I read was actually a quote from uh, uh, a recent uh, article that uh, op-ed that Biden uh, published in the New York Times. Uh, also, interestingly, he he said he thought that uh, he said that, you know, he said things like President Vladimir Putin of Russia, of course, how Putin supposedly thought that, you know, the special operation, uh, as they termed it, or what we would call the invasion of the war in Ukraine, would only last days. Although, I mean, it's not entirely clear, uh, you know, why, you know, he would uh, think that that was sort of uh, Putin's plan and things like this. But but what seems to be the case, at least to me, Mr. Early, I think that the U.S., despite the fact that they tell us here in um, the U.S. about how much Russia is losing, I think is very acutely aware uh, of the fact that that's not the case. And I think that, you know, the continuing funneling of uh, money and weapons and resources to Ukraine sort of evidences that as well. And I think it's also clear that the West intends to, you know, drag this war on for as long as possible, which, of course, is only going to create more suffering for the Ukrainian people. And so, I mean, it's starting to feel like U.S. imperialism is set to get itself caught up in yet another uh, uh, forever war. And, you know, I don't want to be too predictive, Mr. Early. Certainly, we don't know how things end. But understanding that this is at least a pattern in the U.S., I think, is uh, more than worthy of our attention. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think you uh, described the fast moving circumstances uh, after what I term of the Russian invasion, um, which was a failure of diplomacy, uh, both by um, the U.S., NATO, Ukrainian um, expansionist forces, 
which have been creeping towards um, the Russian border by militarizing uh, former um, Soviet uh, republics, um, is now a proxy war uh, of the United States. It is very clear that the most overt uh, conscious strategic uh, leadership in uh, um, in this uh, net, uh, uh, NATO expansionism towards uh, Russia is being led by the United States. The United States military industrial complex uh, is making money hand over fist. And um, they have not attempted at any point really to um, put forth a uh, diplomatic uh, leadership uh, that would justly respond to the concerns of Russia about the incursion on its border and about uh, the right-wing fascist forces that do exist uh, in Ukraine and the attacks on uh, Russian-speaking Ukrainians who have been involved in a separatist movement for a very long time. So this is a very dangerous moment, I think, of um, a war that is no longer creeping, that the United States is, is now fully at the command center of this, notwithstanding the fact that Biden and Blinken at the U.S. State Department continue to say, well, they can't make a determination for the Ukrainian people. They have to make their own decision. Uh, But uh, millions of Ukrainians have been displaced. Thousands have died. Thousands of Russians have died. These are ordinary citizens, working people uh, in military and being forced into voluntary um, uh, soldiers in the case of Ukraine. Uh, who are dying while the elites are continuing to make money hand over fist, uh, again, with the U.S. military-industrial complex. Um, the, the Russian control of uh, about 40 percent of the uh, the energy resources going into Western Europe and the fact that uh, Russia and the Ukraine are grain breadbaskets of the world. Uh, it is the elite elements in these societies that are really benefit, and this is not in the interest of working people. And so what needs to happen is uh, really to force uh, a diplomatic resolve that is just, uh, starting with uh, stopping the encroachment on the Russian border, the militarization um, of those nations uh, uh, which are directed at Russia. There's just no question about it. Uh, Austin, head of the U.S. military, was very explicit and clear uh, that the goal is to weaken Russia. This is a big. This is an issue bigger than the individual of Vladimir Putin. Uh, this is about a threat to the Russian state as well. So these complications really bring us to the point of what is to be done, and diplomacy must prevail. We must keep in mind that we're dealing with nuclear uh, prospects here. Uh, And um, it is a very scary situation. And I think the U.S. public needs to wake up and break out of these abstractions about upholding democracy and hold these uh, politicians in the U.S., both Democrats and Republicans, keeping in mind that John McCain was the leadership of the bipartisan U.S. um, uh, upgrade in the intensifying uh, military uh, weaponry in Uh, Ukraine before he died, an association with skinheads and anti-Semites. These storylines were already known. So I'm I'm really concerned about about where we are. And 
we're facing now a a global crisis as a result uh, with regard to food security. And particularly, this will affect uh, the people of color of the world in the South and working people, uh, the poorest and most marginalized in all of our societies. You know, uh, Mr. Early, I, I cannot help but but wonder when I'm looking at, you know, the content, <clears throat> excuse me, of this article that we're referencing about Biden's uh, remarks where he says, you know, he now he says he'll not try to bring about uh, Putin's ouster in Moscow. Now, this is after he said a few weeks ago, you know, that man must not stay in power and, and all, you know, kind of foolishness, then tried to walk back. Uh, you know, that he was he was not calling for regime change. But you and I and other people on this, you know, watching this stream and listening to the show know that's exactly what he was saying. But I, I am wondering if when I look at Biden's ratings in this country, around 36 percent at this point, depending on which poll you you look at and I compare them to. Vladimir Putin's ratings in his country, purportedly around 80 percent. I am wondering if the effect this uh, um, action that the U.S. and the EU and NATO uh, uh, carried out in Ukraine against Russia actually had the opposite effect in Russia than they thought. I really feel like this whole snowballing of this uh, of this uh, uh, military action in Ukraine, I think is not going the way the war planners in the United States thought it would go. I think they really believed that they would get this groundswell of support against Putin in Russia uh, because, you know, war is unpopular. Nobody wants that. And while there is certainly an anti-war movement in Russia and certainly in Ukraine, that has not translated into protests against Putin to get rid of Putin. And and I just feel like this is Biden's uh, moment where I think he loses, where it's clear he loses uh, if he intends to run for president the next time. I, I don't know how he makes it medically, but that's what he said he'd do. Um, where the Democratic Party loses in the midterms and really where the rest of the world sees the, the uh, a definitive decline of the United States as a superpower that that really has any authority on the rest of the world stage. I mean, if there wasn't a moment in history before now where the rest of the world could see, yes, the United States, they just don't have it anymore. We're just, they're, they're just not the big dogs on the playground anymore. I think this is that moment when the playbook, the coup playbook, the regime change playbook, the proxy war playbook is not working anymore, and I think it's failing spectacularly, Mr. Early. And I'm wondering how you how you see that. Well, I, I think notwithstanding the significance of individual personalities who are in governance and have executive authority, uh, the United States has, has been making up its storyline as these events have unfolded. It has been in a reactive mode, not in a strategic. Uh, diplomatic mode, which have been would have been the first instance when uh, Russia began to uh, mount its forces 
Uh, and, you know, we went on for weeks about, um, oh, they're building up. We think they're going to um, invade. Uh, and the Russians were calling it a special military operation, et cetera. There was no um, sense that they had a strategy of how to bring this to some just resolve before it turned into a hot war. Uh, now that it's a hot war, what we're saying is not just the failure of Biden as an individual, but the failure of the U.S. global strategy in a world that has, is shifting dramatically. Um, and Ukraine, NATO, uh, Russia uh, conflict is just one example of that that has now moved from just a NATO-Ukrainian proposition to a global food security proposition, uh, hitting countries, especially in Asia and Africa, uh, who have been dependent on those grain export relations uh, coming out of the Ukraine and are also uh, uh, dependent on what the, the grain and energy resources that come out of, of Russia. And so I think we see a flailing a Biden-Harris administration, although Harris is, I don't know where, where her voice is in any of this uh, other than uh, standing up to talk about uh, to support uh, racist apartheid occupation, Israel is about the most we hear uh, out of her uh, occasionally. Uh, the world is shifting. Um, China has emerged as a huge uh, economic interlocutor with developing countries and clearly outpaced the United States. And the United States is trying uh, to catch up. And Biden is flitting all over the world. So he was in Asia recently trying to counter uh, not just the military weight of, of China, but China's economic relations uh, with countries who are also reading the tea leaves to see that the world has changed and will continue to change. And so you have countries like India with the right-wing Modi, who's uh, not to be dependent on, but who are hedging uh, their, their, their bets. Uh, we see the case in, in Latin America, where the CARICOM countries, uh, have criticized the Biden administration for excluding uh, Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, and you've got Obrador and Mexico standing forth. Now Biden is um, uh, talking out of both sides of his mouth, but practically what he is doing is aligning himself in realpolitik uh, with the Saudi uh, fascist terrorist regime who openly killed a U.S. Uh, citizen, a journalist, and uh, so they are facing a lot of contradictions about the changing uh, correlation of uh, political and economic forces, or economic and political forces, I should say, in, in the world. And so this is bigger than Biden. This is about the system of U.S. capitalism and U.S. imperial, neo-imperial, neoliberal imperial uh, plans around the world. Uh, this is a moment of, of transition, and therefore, with a, a, a wounded a superpower, a debilitating superpower, it makes it very, very dangerous, as you've seen this bipartisan support for billions of dollars going into the military-industrial complex. We already know, because it's documented even by mainstream press like the Washington Post, the New York Times, that uh, these arms are already showing up in other areas of the world. And so you've got corruption uh, going on. And um, I, as I said, I think it's a very, very scary moment that we could see a, a more overt 
uh, participation on the part of the U.S. And it will not surprise me that in the coming uh, weeks, if not even days, we might hear about the death of, of U.S. military personnel. They won't be able to hide that because clearly they are not just shipping these weapons and saying, uh, here's the training manual. It means that U.S. forces, we know that Biden has already deployed forces into uh, many of the frontline NATO states uh, facing Russia. So these are the complications that are manifested through the failure of Joe Biden, but they are more systemic than just individual. Yeah, and I mean, I think you're right <clears throat> about how we definitely seem to be in a very dangerous uh, uh, moment, Mr. Early. And it's just been so wild to see the United States in all of its efforts to, you know, try to isolate uh, Russia, along with the encirclement of the country that uh, uh, by NATO that we've been seeing uh, really for years. And, and, uh, and this is something, of course, that the U.S. people, I think, by and large, aren't aware of because this this context is verboten uh, in terms of uh, the discourse around this issue and certainly what we hear from the White House and the mainstream media. It's not just, you know, an issue that Vladimir Putin woke up one day and just out of boredom or, or bloodlust decided to invade Ukraine, but that there's, you know, years of, uh, uh, of things that have been unfolding and, and happening in terms of relations between uh, the Soviet Union and the Russian Federation between the United States that is all uh, uh, relevant to this. But since all of that has been obscured, then unfortunately, a lot of people in the United States have been uh, basically manipulated into uh, uh, supporting a proxy war that could potentially have devastating impacts for humanity itself. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukman continue to be joined by Mr. James Early. And Mr. Early, a moment ago, you mentioned uh, Vice President Kamala Harris, uh, of course, the first black vice president in the United States, also a child of immigrants, also uh, of some uh, South Asian descent uh, through her mother. And uh, you talked about how little we hear from her. And you were talking specifically on the issue of Ukraine. But I, I feel like that's characteristic of her time as vice president. I mean, it seems that we generally don't hear that much from uh, uh, Kamala Harris, you know, aside from occasionally being an amen corner for whatever, you know, Joe Biden is talking about in the moment. And maybe this is an aside, you know, to what we're discussing here, but I think it's relevant because to me, you know, like, are we finally at a point where we're uh, uh, ready to acknowledge like the, the complete emptiness of the Kamala Harris 
vice presidency. Now, I think a lot of us felt that it wasn't that substantive from the moment that, you know, she was announced. It just felt like a very transparent sort of thing on the part of Joe Biden. But when we see just, I mean, how little she seems to be a, a factor. And I mean, certainly we're not privy to the inner workings of the White House or anything like that. But I mean, there have even been, you know, articles and things released that have talked about, you know, insiders issues with uh, uh, Harris and how maybe she's not the most popular within the administration and things like that. And I mean, when this is coming from a Democratic Party that has no bench, uh, you know, and, and, and we, we already have Joe Biden as president, which is bad enough. I mean, it still trips me out. I remember when, you know, it was, you know, he first announced his candidacy. I was just like, well, what is even the point of that? There's just no way it's going to be one of these other non Bernie uh, candidates that are going to somehow squeeze through. But wouldn't you know it? Um, uh, the, the Democratic establishment does what they do best and finagle the situation. And basically, here we are. And so, you know, in a general sense, Mr. Early, I'm just wondering what do, what kind of political lessons do you think we can learn from not only sort of like the vice presidency of uh, Kamala Harris, but even if we take a step back and look at, you know, the whole of uh, the Biden administration, which, you know, was pretty diverse as far as U.S., um, you know, a presidential administrations go. But I just don't think that means much when, you know, they, they all have the same program and politics of a Joe Biden, who, of course, represents that uh, centrist wing of this ruling class party. And so, you know, I feel like we often talk about, you know, this issue of identity reductionism and things like this, Mr. Early. And I just feel like that uh, Kamala Harris's vice presidency is, to say the very least, uh, an example of that. Well, I, I zero in on uh, the black uh, voting uh, population across the country because uh, we are a defining uh, community, even uh, when our numbers are not the majority, uh, because of uh, the historical consolidation around the Democratic Party in modern times. Uh, we ultimately uh, make the difference uh, in uh, in the voting for the Democratic Party. Uh, our community bought a symbol. Uh, actually, they bought a number of symbols. They, they bought the uh, hollowed-out abstraction of blackness. They bought the hollowed-out abstraction of, of, of being a woman, a black woman, uh, and just put forth that category that we must have a black woman. There was no earnest discussion about what is the ideological outlook? What are the principles? What are the ethical perspectives? What are the policies that will be advanced uh, by this person? And so the elite uh, leadership of the Democratic Party delivered up uh, a black woman. And there we are. We have those two categories, blackness and womanness combined together, uh, who is outside of the decision-making process uh, of the elite uh, correlation of forces uh, within the Democratic Party tied to their corporate entities and certainly uh, tied to uh, international uh, neoliberal imperial forces. And so it's an empty symbol, I'm, 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 I, I've come uh, to believe. And I don't see uh, her advancing because there is no politic that she is putting forth. And so she has been tagged occasionally to deal with 
immigration and then comes unprepared and disappears on that issue or, or is to speak out in defense again of uh, racist apartheid occupation uh, Israel, not to mention the Palestinians at all, not to talk about Haitians at all, not to talk about uh, the the black people who are particularly young black people who are dying daily in Brazil where um, black and mixed race people represent uh, over 50 percent of the population, according to the official census through which they self-identify and so forth and so on. Um, so this is a really troubling moment. You're right. The, the bench is not deep and Buttigieg is already being edged out uh, as the possible replacement uh, for Biden, who is clearly a declared uh, centrist, uh, who will lean to the center right because uh, global circumstances and including national circumstances uh, will force him in that direction. The rise of um, property crimes, um, uh, 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 gun violence in the in the U.S., white supremacy terrorism in the U.S. All of this is been forcing even Democrats of color, like the mayor of New York City and Deming in Florida, uh, who is running for the Senate, uh, to now uh, talk about uh, security, uh, lock them up. Uh, Biden is talking about funding the police. So these contradictions uh, in daily life are, are, are forcing us to see that uh, we, our community and the liberals who are uh, a part of the alignment of uh, Democratic Party forces bought into the symbol, the empty symbols of skin color and of biological identity, not relating that to issues of principle and ethics and uh, and strategic uh, policy uh, orientation to help improve the lives of ordinary people. So I, that's how I, I see this scenario right now. Uh, I don't see it turning around. Yeah, I, I think this uh, <laughs> this. This Democratic Party uh, in the next election is going to go the way of the Titanic and other, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, seafaring disasters uh, right along with, the, you know, that kind of metaphor. But, you know, you mentioned the way Kamala Harris was trotted out to do whatever it was they thought she was going to do in regard to immigration. So she's visiting, you know, Mexico and Guatemala and on all of that. But she says nothing about uh, the Biden administration's uh, uh, not inviting Venezuela, uh, Nicaragua, and Cuba to the Summit of the Americas. As a matter of fact, she doesn't seem to have a role at all in the Summit of the Americas if she is going to be involved in any way. And I do wonder, you know, if if the fact that the emptiness that we're talking about of the symbolism that the Democratic Party gave, particularly black voters and other voters of color in this country, if that the realization of that presents an opportunity, another one of those unique opportunities for organizing, for pointing out the, the need for internationalism, for pointing out that the same Democratic Party that gives us nothing in this country uh, promotes policies that are reflected around the world that are just as harmful to people who look like us in other countries, in countries that are targeted by this administration, like 
Guatemala uh, or uh, Nicaragua, Venezuela and Cuba. So I'm, I'm wondering how you're seeing the the ability for us to organize internationally in the face of the failures of uh, not just the Democratic Party, but the American governed system of governance in general. Well, I, I think we have to take up the narratives uh, put forth by the Democratic Party and deconstruct them as a part of general political education uh, with working people and their civic organizations uh, in their churches, their synagogues, their mosques, et cetera. And in uh, the arena where voting takes place, it's not just about voting. And in this case, around um, the Kamala Harris and the push skin color and gender correlated, again, without any real discussion of ideological or political content, uh, I think we have to point out the shallowness of uh, the diversion of Kamala Harris and those around her who connects her to the Caribbean as an Indo-Afro-Caribbean. Um, She's not the first Indo-Afro-Caribbean uh, to be in um, a high U.S. government position and, and not even coming out of, out of, out of California. Uh, when we look at the CARICOM countries, for example, that has stood up and criticized the Biden administration, both in terms of uh, the right-wing turn of the Organization of American States, and then specifically uh, in opposition to the U.S. exclusion of Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua, or any country uh, from the Summit of the Americas to take place in Los Angeles uh, next week, uh, we hear nothing uh, about um, Kamala Harris being deployed to talk to uh, her Caribbean uh, legacy uh, countries. And so I think we have to point out these these contradictions that uh, she has, in my view, was an opportunist candidate, and she's been used for opportunist, opportunist reasons. And again, it's an opportunity for citizens to learn that, yes, color is very important in society as an index uh, to socioeconomic uh, marginalization, to incarceration, things of that sort. Gender is a very important sociological index. But just in and of themselves, they mean, I won't say that they mean nothing because they do mean something. It means that they will be utilized by the status quo uh, to keep things as they are or even turn the screws tighter, as we are seeing uh, and we will see more of people of color in elected positions in the Democratic Party, uh, a, a turn on uh, about let's incarcerate more people, let's have harsher uh, our penalties, or will divert us that uh, Putin uh, is the problem of our rising uh, gas prices while uh, these corporations are making, again, money hand over foot. And even, again, the mainstream press is forced in this context, for example, to point out that actually uh, Russia is really defeating these sanctions. Billions of dollars, I think $833 million a day, I think I saw recently coming in, I think from, from Western Europe alone, uh, to keep their energy flow going. And then when we look at the nations in the South, uh, they're taking an objective, non-aligned uh, position uh, in this conflict. And so this is where we have to discern who, who are the Kamala Harris's, who are the Cory Booker's, uh, et cetera, in this context. There is one uh, real politic right side uh, to this in terms of, of race, and uh, that is 
Meeks, Representative Meeks from New York and the foreign head of the Foreign Relations uh, Committee, uh, who early struck out against, several months ago, struck out against the Biden administration with regard to its policy of economic warfare against uh, Cuba and Venezuela in particular. I don't know what position he's taken around Nicaragua. Uh, and the recent letter that has come out, uh, Meeks and Barbara Lee, among others, were saying to the Biden administration, you should not exclude people from the Summit of the Americas. You should remove these Trumpian measures that were imposed on, on, on Cuba. And of course, the contradictions in the world, uh, this may appear to be a bilateral decision on the part of the Biden administration uh, to ease travel to Cuba and some goods going in out of Cuba. But it's part of a bigger picture of uh, the real politic alignment of China, Russia, uh, Cuba, uh, uh, Malaysia, who, who does a lot with oil. Uh, Venezuelan economy is bouncing back. So these things are threaded together in many ways, and it's really important for us to call on the American people to try for themselves to discern what are the connections, but those of us who follow it very, very closely to point out factors that we would ask the people to consider to see what this narrative really is about, to get away from these simplistic uh, kinds of propositions being put forth about, again, in this case, women and color uh, who are handmaidens. Uh, to run a sexist metaphor, uh, to the devastation being wrought. Uh, we've got, what's her name, Greenfield. Is it Green? Greenfield. Green, Linda yeah, Thomas Greenfield. Thomas Greenfield. Greenfield at, at the UN. Uh, nothing about Haiti, nothing about Afro-Colombians, nothing about Afro-Brazilians. Um, and we've got um, Austin in the military-industrial complex, who's made it very, very clear uh, that the goal is to weaken uh, Russia. And so this all the stuff about democracy, he's not talking about the right-wing fascists who are running some of the NATO countries or the right-wing fascists who are key players in, uh, the, uh, in, in Ukraine, both in civil society and in the government. So these are contradictions that I think we must ask people to pay attention to, because ultimately we have to get away from this saying it's about the politicians. No, it's about the citizens who elect these people. That's what it is. It's about our, quote unquote, fellow Americans, over half of whom, for whatever reasons, uh, selfish or more strategic, are electing these right wing fascist politicians. And now they do it in multicolor and many genders. Yeah. And, you know, we've been talking a good bit on the show, Mr. Earlier, about the uh, uh, summit of the Americas that's upcoming. And I'm definitely wondering, you know, your your thoughts on that. Not only, you know, how do you see it situated in terms of uh, U.S. imperialism, similar to, you know, what we're seeing in Ukraine. But I mean, also as someone who, you know, has spent a lot of time, you know, in places like Cuba and Venezuela and seeing, you know, different aspects of those uh, countries, uh, uh, respective processes at different levels. And um, also the response from uh, the other governments in the region uh, uh, around that summit and, and how, you um, uh, critical they've been of the fact that the U.S. is excluding uh, Nicaragua, Cuba, and Venezuela. Uh, how are you seeing it? Well, I think it's actually a, a, a sign of weakness. It's not really a sign of power. And I think there are a couple of factors that uh, undergird the proposition that it's a sign of, 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 of weakness. Uh, Latin America is the most unequal region of the entire world. 
uh, in Brazil, which is the sixth, seventh, perhaps eighth largest economy in the world, over 100 million Afro-descendants are the majority population, which you would not know when you look at the top economic political structure uh, that is Euro-Brazilian. Um, uh, 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 so the issues of poverty um, and the fact that Brazil was the center of a, a right-wing uh, regional fascism up until the mid-60s or so, uh, these contradictions, these objective circumstances will continue to push up these contradictions until we see what is called the pink tide, our social democratic policymakers and social democratic movements, some of whom call themselves socialists, but whose policies have been trying to harmonize against the most egregious dimensions of neoliberal imperialism. Very important because they are reforms uh, that working people have fought to gain or fought to achieve in order just to defend the basic daily necessities of life. So they should not be dismissed out of hand, but nor should they be um, seen in rose-colored glasses as though they are radical developments. They are potentially radical developments over the long haul as working people understand more and more that it's something about the very system. It's not just who the president is or who's in the parliament, et cetera. So these contradictions are objective and they will periodically erupt in Latin America. And so the United States is not in step with that. The head of the CIA now seven, eight months ago uh, was in Colombia. Uh, Colombia just had its first round of elections on Sunday with uh, former mayor of Bogota, a former um, guerrilla member, and with an Afro-descendant uh, progressive activist, Francia Marquez, uh, the United States is worried. And so they are pulling out all stops uh, to try to deal with this. That's why they are concerned of having Cuba, because particularly Cuba, because Cuba is a moral force uh, in the Americas. It's a moral force in the world, even among anti-socialists, many anti-socialists who say, we respect the fact that you stood up against the big behemoth, the, the, the grand imperialists of the United States, and you're trying to be self-determined. And we see the social indicators that you have been able to achieve to improve the quality of life. And we see the harshness and the, and the, the, the uh, undermining of international agreements through the UN and other regional bodies that the U.S. has taken to snuff you out simply because you stood for self-determined. Uh, so the Summit of the Americas is uh, very important, and now it's fractured. And we have to utilize this opportunity to continue to build, uh, particularly in an international perspective with Latin America and the Caribbean, through the community, community of Latin American and Caribbean nations, CELAC, which declared now five, six years ago itself as a zone of peace, a saying in effect, we have really strong ideological and political differences among us, but we can work these out through mutual benefit in a peaceful way, uh, not in an authoritarian way as the U.S. is trying to do. So the Biden-Harris administration with regard to the Summit of Americas looks just like the Trump administration of saying, we'll decide who is in the House and who cannot come into the House. And these other countries are saying, no, you cannot, you cannot do that. We will not accept that. So we're seeing a, a, a real shift and a real concern on the part of the elites here in the U.S., a bipartisan elites, both the right-wing fascist Republicans who are centered in and around Miami with uh, 
all of the right-wing forces coming out of Venezuela, Colombia, Brazil, uh, Cuba, uh, who are aligned right there, in, and, and many of them terrorists. So th- these are the contradictions that we're seeing, and this is the significance of uh, going out to Los Angeles, as many of us will do, uh, in a counter-people's uh, uh, alternate summit uh, to talk about how can progressives build mutual cooperation, respectful cooperation, even as we continue to debate ideological and political differences. Uh, but to do that, uh, trying to advance uh, really the material circumstances of people's lives, uh, not trying to starve them to death as the Biden-Harris administration and its economic war against Cuba, uh, Venezuela, and Nicaragua uh, has been exercising, or in its coup against Bolivia, uh, a, a few years ago against Evo Morales, the first indigenous president of, of, the, of the Americas. Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukman is here. Mr. James Early is here. And we have a caller on the line. Mo, tell us what's on your mind. Yes, um, I would suggest, uh, if you haven't already, there's a very interesting article that appeared in CGN or CGTN, Chinese Government Television Network. And the title of the article is... Uh, the problem with the United States is within. So when the I called in and the person that accepted my call it said that, uh, you know, well, what does that have to do with the summit of the, of the Americas? And uh, just to paraphrase, just some, what I've deemed to be important points in this article, first of all, they referenced Malcolm, Franz Fanon, and Crazy Horse. And uh, again, this is an article that appeared in a Chinese uh, periodical. And the point they're making, they talked about the gun violence, the erosion, economic erosion that you see across the country. Uh, Malcolm talking pretty clearly about what transpired in the Congo, would eventually wash up on US shores, crazy horse. Uh, essentially discussing how, before he was executed, how the Indian nations will rise. And I think that's very important to to this discussion on so many different levels. But specifically, you have a foreign entity that understands clearly about the dynamics of the United States, the dynamics of African-American and how they play within the world stage. And it's very sad because you will not hear any kind of analysis, maybe with the exception of you good folk, but nothing of that kind of clarity 
importance for any member of the Congressional Black Caucus. So here we are left with defending Nazis, and uh, we are allowing the decay of our community, the decay of the moral infrastructure that has allowed us to live and survive for so long. And we're allowing us to really, we're just throwing up our hands and saying, uncle. So if you haven't read that article, I would strongly suggest that you do. And uh, I'll leave there and let you respond to my, to my commentary. But thanks for taking my call. Well, thank you, Mo. Always good to hear from you. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, Mr. Early, your thoughts? Well, I, 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 it sounds like it's a very important article to, to, to look at. And um, it is not really a challenge, uh, an intellectual challenge, uh, to describe what is going on in the U.S. And um, that is not in any way to depreciate the value of uh, the Chinese statement. And I am uh, very supportive of the self-determination that the Chinese uh, have taken, uh, both in terms of the development of their own country and the long road that they have traveled, and the uh, material development role that they are playing uh, with developing countries around the world, and and what they're doing in Euro-Asia, Euro uh, which is one of the concerns of the U.S. and Western Europe, is that uh, the de facto uh, alliance uh, with the economic forces of Russia and the military power of Russia as well with China uh, is uh, really uh, being more aligned with, with these developing countries. But having said that, uh, I think we have to be very careful in this. I don't want to suggest that this is what the caller was implying, but I want to take this opportunity to raise the issue. We have to be very uh, careful in looking at um, the enemy of my enemy uh, is somehow my friend. Um, I have raised the question, why doesn't China just drop uh, a trillion dollars on the Cubans and say, here's a trillion dollars, go for it? Uh, what is China's perspective about the majority black population in Brazil? Uh, they are very intricately tied in the economic development. And Brazil is a powerhouse among the BRIC countries of Brazil, China, uh, India, South Africa. Um, we have to ask ourselves from a working class perspective and the racialized and gender, gender nature uh, of the working class all over the world where the, the most egregious indices uh, of injustice uh, and underdevelopment and death are seen. What is our interest in these machinations? And are these parties conditioning their interactions uh, with these nations uh, in support of our proactivity as citizens to uplift ourselves and to be full of players in the uplift of our countries overall. There is a tendency of this kind of either or situation, uh, certainly within bourgeois society, but also on the left. So that's my question uh, to the Chinese. The Russians are not good on the race question. Uh, and for a long time, one can go back and look at the contradictions of racism inside Russia. That does not in and of itself uh, demiss their significance or in and of itself demiss the significance of the Chinese. Uh, but this is where we have to ask ourselves, how are these policies grounded and conditioned uh, with regard to the international working class and particularly the racialized and gender dimensions uh, of the working class? And I think as we engage in the complexities of world politics, 
we have to be careful of uh, these sort of parallelisms. It's A or it's B, a lot more complicated, and we always have to raise uh, what is the optic for decision making, and it must be about working people and the actual sociology where the most egregious circumstances of working people are. And they tend, as Du Bois pointed out, uh, and I've mentioned this a number of times on this program, that inevitably to preserve the social relations of elites living in uh, nice circumstances, uh, the majority of the world's people are, are being forced into ignorance and poverty and disease, and that inevitably to preserve this relationship, they will go to war. And it's generally against people of color. And if you, that, that has a lot to do with the history of people of color in the colonial world and the development of capitalism. So this is a, an analytical framework that I think we have to use to navigate our ways through the complexities. And we have to make tough decisions in looking at the balance of power. There are no pure people in any place. But the question is, what is the trajectory uh, most productive towards a, a humanistic, respectful, secure future versus those who are clearly reactionaries and bloodthirsty uh, killers, as Martin Luther King pointed out, about the militarism uh, and the capitalism of the U.S. So we have to raise with China and Russia, uh, uh, with the Maduro government, uh, with the hopeful Lula government that will be coming into power perhaps in October in Brazil, uh, with Petro and Francia Marquez, uh, in Colombia with Ortega in Nicaragua. Uh, what is your relationship? Uh, not giving people something, but working in cooperation and collaboration and decision-making policies, not just about themselves, but for the entire nation, for the regions in which they live, and for their participation in the world. And this is one of the distinctions that Hugo Chavez, uh, I think, stood up far above many of the leaders before him and of his time in uh, looking at that correlationship. To some extent, Lula did the same in his opening of Brazil as an economic power uh, with African countries and standing forth in support of them against the elites, the European elites in, in Davos and the like. Definitely. We're going to try to squeeze another caller in here. Keith, tell us what's on your mind. Mr. Early, thank you for being on uh, by any means necessary. I appreciate all of this information and uh, your credibility. I have something that's indirectly related, and that is censorship of information that would, um, how can I say, uh, implicate the U.S. and other countries in their dastardly deeds, meddling in other countries and so forth. But basically put, uh, Oliver Stone uh, in 2014 went to interview Putin, and on his way out, he decided to stop in to Ukraine, where he ran across the Stefan Bondera group, the uh, neo-Nazis, the awful history, the brutality, their uh, genocidic quote against Russians who were inferior, and on and on and on. So I watched it on Amazon Prime, and then I sent the link off to people, and everyone came back and said that it had been taken off of YouTube. And I was just wondering... Um, you know, big brothers watching us, are we paranoid? I mean, that this would be taken down? I mean, uh, and I'd just like your, your opinion. Thank you, sir. Well, thank you, Keith. Always appreciate you uh, calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. Mr. Early, your thoughts? Uh, first of all, Pete, thank you. And, and it's really to, uh, to Sean and, and Jackie and their colleagues at By Any Means Necessary, which really 
make the distinction here. And, and so I really want to applaud them. And I, while I'm pleased to be on, there are many people who have an opportunity to bring uh, progressive and transformative views on, uh, but it's not because we initiated them, because that we've got this important program, uh, which is listening audience, I ask you to really, really support uh, and engage them. Um, we do have a censorship, and I think we have to figure out a way to target particularly the so-called liberal mainstream, mainstream press, which is multicultural, multiracial, uh, men and women. Um, Joy Reid, uh, several months ago, uh, made a comment about uh, Putin uh, saying, well, why can't we just take him out like the United States uh, often does, as in the case of, of Lumumba? I was stunned. I was, and so these people have bought, they buy into the State Department line. They run the same line, and we have to criticize them because they are the most important massive political education forces on the planet. They really penetrate the entire world. Certainly, uh, they penetrate all dimensions of our, our, our nation. And uh, many of these people, gay, lesbian, Latino, Latina, uh, black, have arisen to these positions of dissemination, of misinformation as a result of the struggles against racism, against homophobia, uh, in uh, the struggles to achieve working class gains. And now they are there as hollow symbols ostensibly representing us, and we have not found a way uh, to challenge that. Now, one way of challenging that is to support programs uh, like this one and other alternative uh, progressive media. But we have really got to figure out not how to be parallel to them, but how to actually carry on a battle in this information war, this and misinformation war uh, that is, 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 is going on. And we haven't found a way to to, to, to really run systemic, uh, systematic campaigns over extended periods. Let's call that the order. I'll conclude by saying that, uh, you know, I, I, I judiciously watch uh, the media and listen to the media, and more and more I'm seeing creeping out now by some mainstream uh, media people about the fascists uh, in Ukraine, about the fact that there are these ethnic tensions and that there is no a consolidated notion of Ukraine, per se, about the fact that notwithstanding, uh, I think, the necessary critique uh, of the brutality, the violence that Putin did unleash on the Ukrainian people and the destruction, material destruction of that, of that society, we're seeing more and more uh, secondary mainstream journalists, media people come forth and say, uh, Russia has a legitimate concern about the encroachment of its border. They are the targets. Uh, were before the, during the Cold War, and they've been the target post-Cold War uh, of Western imperial expansion. And so uh, this media arena is one that we have to support again and, and programs like by any means necessary, but we also have to really not just critique, but figure out how to leverage uh, these mainstream media disinformation uh, uh, empires that penetrate the entire world. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And you know, uh, it's funny because I swear that this whole situation, particularly with uh, the war in Ukraine, has it's given me almost sort of a new 
uh, view uh, uh, of sort of the media as an institution in general. I mean, certainly before it, I was clear on what on how corporate owned media operated and the fact that it was in service to the ruling class. But then when you see an all out attack on um, alternative platforms, then uh, uh, I think a lot more things uh, start to become clear. And someone was asking me not long ago when I was describing this and they were basically saying, well, what are you saying? It's like a conspiracy to take down all these platforms. And I'm like, well, I'm not saying it's a conspiracy. I'm saying there's a clear pattern of uh, how these attacks are playing out and the uh, uh, perspectives and narratives they're trying to keep from the American people that we must continue to support. But we're going to leave it there for today and this week here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Mr. James Early, so much for joining us today. We'll be back next week with an all-new slate of episodes. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.